Okay, then 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of the second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in, the, in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behaviour of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behaviour of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, and captains over his fifties will set some to the plough, his, some, he will set some to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep He will be his, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you'd speak to us by your spirit, through your word, and through your servant this morning. Please anoint and fill me with your spirit, and please anoint all of our ears, that we would hear you speaking to us, that we would be both fed, encouraged, and built up in our faith this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's repeat uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. So there seems to be three acts in the life of Samuel. The first act is as a youth, when he was serving in the tabernacle as a boy up to the age of, say, 13, something like that. The second act is 20 years later, where we see him as a young man serving as a judge, early 30s, and he is used by the Lord to bring the whole of Israel to repentance. 
And after they come to faith and repentance in the Lord, the Philistines come to attack and the Lord fights for them, defeats the Philistines, and so Israel lives in peace. We are now at the beginning of the third act of uh, the life of Samuel, and perhaps the biggest section uh, devoted in scripture to, is given to uh, this third act. And we see him as an old man. He's perhaps 30 years on from when we last saw him, so he's in his, his early 60s, the commentators speculate. And he has been serving faithfully as a judge, but now we see him serving as a kingmaker. So there were 20 years of silence between his, his youth and his, and his young man, being a young man, and we did a whole talk about that. And then there's 30 years between being a young man and old man, and I'm not going to do a talk on, on that, because we already know what he was doing during that time. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, it says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places, but he always returned to Ramah. So he'd been judging Israel faithfully, going on a circuit, ministering to people, but his base was Ramah. And the fact that these mere, these 30 years are, remain silent in Scripture shows us he was doing a, doing a good job. No more would need to be said. He was maintaining peace and justice, keeping Israel's borders uh, secure from Philistine incursion. For 30 years, Samuel has faithfully led Israel. But you know what? It's a sad reality of life that we grow old. While young, we may have the vigour and the strength to lead, yet we often lack the wisdom and experience. But when we're old, we have the wisdom and the experience to lead, but we often lack the vigour and the strength. It's a cruel life, isn't it? But that's why the church needs to be run on the wisdom of the old and the zeal of the young. You need two working together. A true shepherd will care for his sheep and make sure that provision is made to look after them when he is no longer able. So we should always be looking to feed, to encourage, to build up and equip the young so they can take over from the old. And now at the start of Samuel's third act, he's grown old, he's about 60, his mind turns to the matter of the future. What am I going to do? What is Israel going to do when I die? And uh, feeling his age, as if he says, you know, what provision can I put in place to stop Israel slipping into sin like they've done in the past? What measures can I put in place to safeguard the future? And his solution is to appoint his two sons as uh, judges. And Samuel's goal is a noble goal. We respect his goal. And Samuel's solution is a reasonable solution. It makes sense. However, it lacks one important thing the approval of God. God hasn't said that this is God's solution. So when we feel our age, and since the time is coming when we need to pass the baton, what should we do? Well, I want to turn to another man who had two sons, who was growing old, and he was facing the same problem. What do I do about passing the baton of leadership on? Do I give it to my two sons? Can we turn to Numbers chapter 27, please? We're talking about Moses. Numbers chapter 27. 
and I'm going to read from verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Moses is not 60 years old like um, Samuel. He's double that. He's 120 years old. And the Lord has shown him he's going to die. He's not going to enter the promised land. And so Moses seeks the Lord for a successor. And as I said, Moses has two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And it would be reasonable to appoint them as the new leaders of Israel. But no, he prays and asks God to show him whom he wants to appoint as the leader over Israel. And of course, the leader shows Moses that it's going to be Joshua. And this is Samuel's one failing. He follows logic and convention instead of asking God for his appointed leader. And I really do hate to criticise this hero of faith because I really do like Samuel. But even the great and the godly have feet of clay. And we must be careful not to look at our leaders as if they're the all-seeing eye and that they have the answer to everything. Only God has the answer to everything and we should always be looking to him. And I've seen in many churches, I've seen it in Calvary chapels as well, sons and sons-in-law take over from their fathers and fathers-in-law in leadership. And if that son is God's appointed leader, all well and fine. But sometimes I think this has proven to be misplaced nepotism. And it's dangerous. The sons have not had their character proven by God. And the church has suffered as a result. And I certainly where Calvary Chapel Maidstone is concerned, I'm not looking at my sons to take over. Ian and I are resolved to look to the Lord to appoint future leaders, to guide and lead the church. Not that I'm looking to step down anytime soon, but you know, you never know what the Lord has around the corner, do you? Uh, so where were Samuel's sons based? Well, the text tells us they were judges in Beersheba. Uh, Beersheba is in the deep south of Judah. Where was Samuel based? Samuel was in Ramah. Ramah is in the northern part of the tribal territory of Ephraim. Now, when I was looking on Google Maps, there's probably about 65 miles as the crow flies between Beersheba and um, uh, Ramah. But of course, it's going to be a whole lot longer by road. And in that day and age, it's going to take quite a few days to be able to get to, from Ramah to Beersheba. The point being is that Samuel can't keep daily close watch and tabs upon his sons. And so he's probably not fully aware of all that they're involved in and the corruption that has started to creep into their lives. In fact, it might not be until the elders of Israel come to Samuel that he's made first aware of the situation. I don't know. 
Going back to our text, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Now, if you're like me, you read this, and is your mind transported back to another priest who had two sons and got corrupted just a few chapters back? Don't you just think about Eli uh, with Hophni and Phineas? And you think, oh no, this is a little bit of history repeating itself here, surely. Um, a priestly father with two corrupt sons. However, there is a difference between these two situations, and I think it's important to point it out. Uh, we're told in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, now the sons of Eli were corrupt, they did not know the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas were never believers. They never trusted in the Lord. They were corrupt right from the beginning. But here, in 1 Samuel 8, verse 3, it says, but his sons did not walk in his ways, they turned aside. The suggestion of the text is that they were believers. They did walk with the Lord. But the moment they were given responsibility, they started to turn aside. Then they went away from the Lord. Eli's sons were rank unbelievers. They, uh, but Samuel's sons backslid. They fell into sin. That's the difference. And the suggestion is that they were fine until they were given the responsibility and the power of being judges. Perhaps they hadn't had a proven character. Perhaps they hadn't been tried and tested from the Lord. So when they were given this responsibility, the power corrupted them. You know, it was the British Prime Minister, William Pitt, the elder, who said in a speech in, speech in 1770 in the House of Lords, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. This is the danger of power. Power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. And it's, look, that's what I think happened here with these two sons. So what's the safeguard against the corrupting influence of the power? It's a life tried, tested and submitted to God. That's why it's important to have God's appointed leader in authority because God will appoint somebody who is able to deal with authority and not let it go to their head and use it as an opportunity for um, immoral gain and taking advantage. Now, we look at Eli and we look at um, Samuel and you think, well, is it their fault that their sons turned out their, the way they did? Was this a failure in parenting on both parts? And I want to say no. No, it wasn't a failing. Eli was a bad parent um, because he did not discipline his sons. He did not remove them from office and he allowed their sin to corrupt them. And what's more, yeah, he allowed their sin to corrupt him. He started to partake in their dishonest gain. But with Samuel, he was a good parent because he, but thing is, yet despite being a good parent, he couldn't stop his children falling away. And this is a grievous thing in being a parent. When we see our children rejecting the Lord, when we see our children backsliding, we've brought them up in the faith, we've taken them to church, they've attended Sunday school, we've diligently led them in devotions at homes, and yet they still choose to turn away from the Lord. And it's easy to ask that question of ourselves, where did I go wrong? 
What did I do wrong? What was my failing? Why have my children not followed the law the way that I have? And often the answer to that question, where did I go wrong, is nothing. I didn't go wrong anywhere. I didn't do anything wrong. You see, I know that no parent is perfect. I know that all parents look back and regret some of the things they said, the mistakes they made, wish they could have done things different. But thing is, the truth of the matter is, we can bring our children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and yet they can still turn aside the way that Samuel's sons turned aside. Why? Because everybody has free will. Everybody has to make their own choice as to whether they're going to serve the Lord or not. We can give our children the best advantage, the best opportunity in life, but they can still turn aside because they've got free will. And this is the grief of a, a parent who has a backslidden child. The choice of the wide and the narrow gate is set before us all. The choice of whether we will serve Jesus with our life or not is offered to every man and woman. And only the individual can make the decision over what they will do with their life. I believe that God comes and knocks on the door of, of everybody's heart and mind and gives them that choice. Now certainly by giving them a Christian education and bringing them up in the fear of the Lord, you're giving them much greater advantage, much greater opportunity to know and to choose the right path. But it comes down to them, ultimately. And we do hope and we do pray for our children. But for every prodigal that returns, there is an Absalom that stays away. And I don't know quite how to speak comfort into that situation. How do you speak comfort into a situation where a child falls away from the Lord and refuses to come back? That's a grief, a heavy grief to bear. And I'm sure that Samuel was feeling that grief in his heart when he heard this news. I think the fact that Samuel was a good parent is proven a few chapters on in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Can you just flick over a couple of pages to 1 Samuel chapter 12? Because I want to show you something. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed I have, in, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and grey-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Where were Samuel's sons? They were with everybody else. Were they in that position of authority in Beersheba as, as uh, judges? No. You see, Samuel's sons had been removed from office. Samuel found out that his sons were acting corruptly, and what did he do? He said, you're fired. You're just going to be like everybody else. And he removed them from office. That's a sign that Samuel was a good parent. He disciplined his sons, and he took them away from that position of influence because he recognised that they would bring corruption to Israel. Now they're on the same level as the rest of the people. Samuel put an end to their wayward behaviour and probably saved their souls. Because we see here they were not slain like Eli's sons were slain. Samuel had learned the lesson from his childhood guardian, Eli. If I don't discipline my sons, then my sons' lives could be forfeit and I could be forfeit too, and I don't want that to happen. So, 
we see that these, these, though they look similar, we see different approaches to parenting here. But the, do you know what? The story of Samuel's sons does not end here. Samuel was a Levite. He was a descendant of uh, Levi. And Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Each of those were three, the three Levite families. And Samuel was from Kohath. He was a Kohathite, so his children were Kohathites as well. And if you can find 1 Chronicles, I want to show you something that I think is quite interesting. 1 Chronicles chapter 6. 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 33. Now, I know when it comes to uh, chronologies of people's names, we tend to glaze over and fall asleep, but there are gems within these, and they're in the Bible for a reason. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 33, it says, And these are the ones who ministered with their sons. So these are the musicians in the house of the Lord. These are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites were Heman, the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah. Isn't this just wonderful? Samuel's son Joel had a son called Heman. Now, when we say He-Man, we're not talking about the guy who held aloft his magic sword and said, by the power of Grayskull. That's a different He-Man. This is, this, is, this is a He-Man who was a singer in the house of the Lord. And Joel may, have Joel may have failed in his service to the Lord, but that didn't mean that his son had to. Joel made a wrong choice, but He-Man made a right choice. Whilst you're in 1 Chronicles... Go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 25. One Chronicles 25. And I'm going to read from verse 4 and 5, uh, which says. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer. So he was a seer as well as a singer. He had a prophetic gifting, and that prophetic gifting came out in the worship and his singing. But yeah, all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God to exalt his horn. For God gave Heman 14 sons and three daughters. All these were under the direction of their father for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps for the service of the house of the Lord. Of God. God rewarded Heman for his faithful service with 17 children. Remember, I've said this before God's idea of blessing somebody is by giving them lots of children. Children are a blessing from the Lord. God loves big families. So here we've got 17 children, 14 sons, and three daughters. How many of these became believers, and how many of these fell away? Well, in our society, we might feel lucky that half the children come to know the Lord. But there in verse 6, we read, All these, all these, all the children were under the direction of their father for music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps for the service of the house of God. Not one fell away. Praise the Lord. All serve the Lord in the worship of the house of the Lord. You've heard of the Jackson 5? This is the Heman 17. Isn't that wonderful? Samuel must have been so grieved at what happened to his sons, but it didn't mean that it all had to go that way. 
Job's son, Heman, had four, uh, 17 children that all remained in the Lord and served him faithfully. And what's the lesson we learn from Heman? Well, simply this. If you don't come from a godly family, make sure a godly family comes from you. If you don't come from a godly family, make sure a godly family comes from you. If you can't change the past, you can certainly influence the future. And that's what Heman did. Praise the Lord. Back to Samuel, back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Then all the children, sorry, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. That's nice, isn't it? Look, you are old. Uh, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So, all the elders of Israel come to Ramah, they approach Samuel, and what do they do? They dump on him. You're old, your kids are worthless, we want somebody new. That's what they're saying, it. you're past it, your kids are worthless, we want somebody new. And in highlighting Samuel's age, they're merely pointing out the well, everybody else knows. His term as a judge is coming to an end. And they want what all people want. A continued life of peace and security and rising prosperity. And Samuel has delivered that up to this point. But what happens when he's gone? Well, in highlighting the failure of Samuel's two sons, they alert Samuel to the condition of his sons, because it's possible he doesn't know. And in doing this, they make it known that his solution was not working. But don't worry, we've got a plan B. And this is the solution they present to Samuel. Make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We've been looking around and we've seen what the other nations are doing. We think they've got it right. And no doubt Samuel's heart sunk at this suggestion. Because in proposing a king, Israel are making the same mistake Samuel did with his two sons. They're appointing a leader according to their own judgment instead of waiting upon the Lord for his appointed leader. So, there are three problems. Samuel is declining, his sons are degenerating, and Israel are defecting. I say Israel are defecting because God was to be their king. But by saying they want a king like the nations, they are in effect saying, we don't want the king we have, we want a different king. And as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. If they have a king and they've got God, which one are they going to favour? One is going to be demoted in favour of the other. And, and see, the eyes of the elders were on the surrounding nations, how they governed, how they administered their country. And they said, we want to be like the other nations. It was inviting the ways of the world into the household of God. And this is the perennial danger of the church. It turns its eyes from the Lord to the world and sees, ah, the way the world does things and it's successful. Let's bring those methods into the church. And what it's doing is it's inviting the ways of the world into the household of God and it's not what God wants. Our eyes should always remain firmly focused upon the Lord, looking for his direction, his ways, and his guidance. The church, like Israel before, is called to be a witness uh, of the Lord to the world. Yet, instead of being a holy nation set apart from the world, it starts to become a corrupt people conforming to the world.
Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So, how does Samuel respond? Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel was hurt by this request. He could see that it was a rejection of God as king, but it felt like it was a personal rejection of him also. Yet he offers us an example of how we're to respond to disappointment and rejection. How to deal with people who turn away from the Lord. We come to the Lord in prayer. When people hurt us, when we feel rejected, when we feel wounded by other people, don't take it out on somebody else. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. As Joseph Scriven wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Prayer should be our first, best fortress when faced with the cares of life. And we need to develop a firm habit of making Jesus our refuge and strength. Whatever life throws at us, only then, whatever life throws at us, we should come to the Lord in prayer because only then will we know the peace that he grants amidst the storm and guidance in the face of opposition. And the Lord answers Samuel in verses 7 to 9. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behaviour of the king who will reign over them. So the Lord answers Samuel with three responses. The first response is a word of comfort to Samuel personally. He says, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. And in this statement, the Lord takes all the pain and disappointment of a defecting nation and degenerate sons on himself. And he says, it's not your fault, Samuel. And he brings comfort to Samuel. And it's amazing how God can speak a single word into our lives and how our perspective can just shift based upon that one word. When you're in prayer, God brings to mind a scripture and a thought and suddenly your whole take upon it changes and you feel that burden lift and that peace descend. And I think that's what happens to Sam at this moment in time. It's not you they're rejecting, it's me. The burden is lifted and the peace descends. The second thing that uh, God says to um, uh, Samuel is, is he diagnoses Israel's condition. They have forsaken me and served other gods, he says. And Israel are continually looking to serve anything or anyone other than the Lord, it seems. They want a king from earth, not a king from heaven. And this rejection of God as their king 
will continue time and time again with its ultimate fulfillment at Calvary. We all know John 19 verses 14 to 15 where Pilate said to the Jews, Behold, your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. This rejection of Jesus as God, as their king, is the perennial problem of the nation of Israel. And then we get the third response from God. God's third response is to direct Samuel to give the people what they want, to give them a king, which feeds into what Ian was talking about last week in Romans chapter 1, how God gives people over to their sin. If they keep pushing for something, God will give them over to it. If you want a king, I'll give you a king. But there's going to be consequences, just as it is when God cans people over to their sin. And so God says, shows grace to Israel by directing Samuel to forewarn Israel about what a king will be like. He wants to let them know what they're letting themselves in for. Basically, God says, okay, you want a king, there are some terms and conditions, and I want you to read out those terms and conditions to the children of Israel. And who likes terms and conditions here? Who loves reading and going through terms of conditions? You know, you buy a new mobile phone, you've got to scroll through the terms and conditions and tick the bottom. Who here reads all those? I bet you do, don't you, Ian? No? No? You know, you agree to have work done in your home. You've got to go through the terms and conditions, sign at the bottom, or you sign up to a serving, streaming service online. I've got a new, I've got a new door, door, uh, doorbell just this week, and it comes with an app, so you can video people at your front door. Long list of terms and conditions. Did I read them? Do you know, I was preparing this sermon and I was writing about terms and conditions. I thought, I just need a break. I know, I'll register this mobile, uh, I'll open up the packaging for this doorbell, open the app, all the terms and conditions. And I felt a, I felt a prick inside my conscience because I'm talking about terms and conditions. What did I do? I just scroll, scroll through them and touch the bottom. I tried to start reading them and I got a couple of terms in. It was just too much. And that's exactly what Israel's like. Samuel's going to be reading them the terms and conditions and they're going to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Just sign on the bottom, I want, I want my king. So, yes, let's just jump over to verses 19 and 20 where it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we will also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You know, they're given a long list of terms and contracts, but no, they just tick at the bottom. We'll, we'll take whatever. We know what we want. But do you know what? I want us to go through these terms and conditions. So brace yourself, because I know it's not the most exciting things, terms and conditions, but I think it's important for us to know what they were signing up for. Verses 10 to 12. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, This will be the behaviour of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his uh, chariots. So the first term is the king would take the sons. The king would want a standing army to protect his throne and the nation, 
So he, instead of having a voluntary enlistment, he would, uh, he would put conscription into place and he would draw people from the, uh, from, from the sons to be able to serve in the army. And you know he's going to take the best, strong, strongest people to be able to serve in the army. He's not going to want the weaklings, he wants the best men to do that. And so instead of living in the security and comfort of a loving home, the sons would be taken from their homes, employed for military purposes, and placed in a position of insecurity and discomfort. The king would also take the sons to work in his private fields and vineyards because the palace would need feeding and the army would need supplies. And who would the king take? As I said, the best men, the strongest men, the most able men. And where would these men otherwise be? They'd be working their land, helping to support their families. The effect of the king taking the sons is families would have less hands to work the farms, creating more work for those who remain, causing a greater burden both physically and financially on the people that stayed there. The second term is seen in verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. That second term, take the daughters. The king would live a pampered lifestyle. He wanted the best cooks, he wanted the best bakers, he wanted perfumers, if not for himself, certainly for his wife, so they would smell and look nice. And you know, it's been said, if you have a daughter, you have her for life. If you have a son, you have him until he finds a wife. If you have daughters or sons, they're yours until the king comes. People would be bereft of their children as a result of having a king. The third term is seen in verse 14. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. So the third term is the king would take the best of Israel's fruit and produce. You know, a family would work hard all year, ploughing the field, sowing the seed, praying for rain, rejoicing in the harvest, working hard to gather it all in, only to see the king come and take the best of the crop for his servants. In short, the land would experience a heavy taxation at the hand of the king. If there were no king, there'd be more for the family, both in produce and revenue. Fourth term is seen in verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. So the fourth term is the king would take a percentage of the people's wine and stores. That which had been hard work, uh, yeah, that which had been hard worked for, stored up for a rainy day, you know, at the end of a hard day, they can sit down and have some food and enjoy a nice glass of wine. But now that would be heavily taxed as well for the needs of the, the army. And when the army came knocking for their tenth, no one would be able to refuse. And so this amounts to another tax. So we're seeing tax upon tax happening. And who here likes taxes? Anybody? Nobody likes taxes, do they? The fifth term is seen in verse 16. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. So the, the fifth term is the king would take a labour force from the people. Imagine having a team of faithful servants with you for years. You've invested time and effort in training them up. You know that they know the land, the soil, every inch of the fields. You have a lean and well-oiled team of workers. 
And added to that, you've got donkeys. Donkeys that you've carefully bred over the years to ensure you have the best pedigree, broken in, trained, and well-versed in the work required of them. And then comes the king and takes the best of your workforce from you. Suddenly your productivity plummets. You, your remaining servants struggle because the best servants have gone. And you have to find new servants and train them up if you can afford them. Life becomes harder as a result of having a king. The sixth term is seen in verse 17. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. So the sixth term is that you'll lose sheep and you'll become his servants. Sheep provided wool for clothes, clothes for your back, meat for the stomach, sacrifice for the tabernacle. In other words, you would feel the effect of the king on your back, in your stomach, even at that time of worship. The servitude the people had known under the Philistines would be exchanged for the servitude under the king. Not as bad as the Philistines, but not the utopia that they imagined. And then in verse 18, the 17th term, the, sorry, the seventh term, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. The fifth, sorry, the seventh and final term is the Lord will hand you over to the king. Israel had been deaf to the calls and the admonitions of God, thus God would be deaf to their calls and admonitions. He would hand them over to the king. And in case you consider this all exaggeration, consider the cry of the people to King Rehoboam, Solomon's son. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we read, Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, the newly appointed king, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your fathers and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So this is the cry of the people at the end of the reign of King Solomon, perhaps the greatest king Israel knew, and um, what, was this, what was the hallmarks of his reign? Heavy taxation, heavy burden, heavy yoke upon the people. Jeroboam speaks for the people and says, can you lighten the load that your father um, uh, Solomon put upon us, please, King Rehoboam. And how does Rehoboam respond? He says, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And what happens in that day when the people cry out to the Lord? The Lord does not hear them. And where else have you got to go if the gates of heaven are closed? That's what the people were facing if they decided to sign the terms and conditions of a king. Faced with these terms, would you pause for reflection? Would you think, hang on a minute, I need to, I need to think this one through for a minute. Would you hesitate before signing up for a monarchy? Surely there's another option. Well, yes, there is another option. Have God as your king. He goes out and fights for you in the battles. He's the one who defeated the Philistines. He's the one who will provide for you in all areas of life. But yet, in their obstinacy, Israel stick with their demand for a king. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so, 
their fate was set. And so the last two verses. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. And with this dismissal from Samuel, the time of the judges officially comes to an end. Next time, we'll see a new chapter in the history of Israel opening as, Saul appoints, sorry, as Samuel appoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And so the time of the kings commences. But before I close, let's just consider for a moment what would have happened if Israel had relented, if they'd repented of their foolish demand and they took the Lord back as their king. What would life have looked like for them then? as God as their king. For us, who is our king? Is it King Jesus or is it ourselves? Are we bowing to King Jesus or are we bowing to our mobile phone? Are we serving King Jesus or our own pleasure? Are we working for the glory of King Jesus or our own glory? What is the common characteristic of the king found in these terms and conditions? He will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fruit. He will take your wine. He will take your workforce. He will take your servants. What is the chief characteristic of King Jesus? He will give. He won't take your sons, he'll make you his sons. He won't take your daughters, he'll make you his royal daughters. He won't take your fruit, he will make you fruitful. He won't take your wine, he'll pour into you his new wine. He won't take your workforce, he'll make you his fellow workers in the Holy Spirit. He won't take your servants, he'll make you, he will serve you with his salvation. He'll give you his love, he'll give you his kindness, he'll give you his provision, he'll give you his care, he'll give you his protection, he'll give you him very, his very self. And when you cry out, he won't deafen your, his ears, he will draw near to the humble and he will comfort the brokenhearted. Rehoboam said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The kings of the earth will always take, but as it says in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When it comes to terms and conditions and signing up for a king, King Jesus not only has my signature, he has my heart. Amen. Heavenly Father, please help us to be moved to sign up to the terms and conditions of having King Jesus as the one who is enthroned in our hearts. Help us not to settle for second best as the world does, but help us to 
uh, bow the knee to the supreme ruler of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, knowing that you are the one who brings true comfort and protection to our soul and provides for all our needs in life. In Jesus' name, amen.